just know that we're eternally saved, redeemed, that Jesus cared enough, God cared enough, the Father, to send His Son for us? Really? Would you die for you? Would you die for somebody else sitting beside you? I mean, the words are pretty nice to say, but if it came down to crunch time, I'm not so sure I'd go through with that. But the Lord did. He's worthy of our praise this morning. I hope for the next few minutes you'll be able to just push things away a little bit and, and let's just rejoice together in all that God has done for us. Let's learn a little bit about His Word. Before we go there to that, though, I'd like to do what we did a couple weeks ago, and that is to spend a little bit of time in prayer, if we will, collectively, silently. I just would, uh, I'm thinking about how this is a very appropriate time for us as a church family to pray as a part of our worship service. And so you often hear me pray, and I'll close this in prayer. But I want to take a couple minutes and just prompt you with some thoughts this morning as we bow together. And just for 10, 15 minutes, well, okay, we'll say seconds. Huh? <laughs> uh, just go through some of these thoughts in your own mind between you and the Lord. Now, the first one is, you remember Brother uh, Mihai and Dana uh, Mikula from Romania. I got an email this morning that something tragic happened during the night concerning their House of Hope in Romania. I'm not sure what that is. The person who sent the email did not know, uh, but we'll get more information. So can we just go to the Lord and, and lift them up first, just for a couple seconds here, and then I'll prompt us with another one. So let's uh, just silently pray through that for a moment. Secondly, pray that the, the glory of the Lord would be on us this morning. We would just experience His radiant glory. And that our hearts would be open to His Word today. That he would help us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. As we've often asked God to open the hearts of the lost this morning. And then finally, that God would just simply speak to us out of his word clarify for us what he wants us to know today. And Lord, we present these things to you this morning in honor of you, to glorify you, knowing that you care and that you have our best interest at heart and your glory at heart. So Lord, we humbly come before you and ask these things and that you would hear us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now again, before you get too comfortable, let's stand and read a couple verses. I had planned on covering more today, but it's just not going to be possible. We are in Matthew chapter 3, and I just want us to read verses 7 and 8. Okay, Matthew 3, 7 and 8. But when he, and that's John the Baptist, because that's the context we're in, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen. You may be seated. Now, let's just go back in our thoughts, as we always do, just to remember what we've learned from the previous week, and that is John the Baptist was born of a miracle. Remember I said that it was not a miraculous birth in the sense that Jesus' was, but Zacharias and Elizabeth were barren. They could not have children, but God intervened in his own divine way and brought John the Baptist into the world for the specific purpose of being the herald, the herald, the proclaimer of the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. That's Matthew's whole point so far in this work of the Gospels, is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Secondly, we learn that John was not only the proclaimer, but he was also the preparer of the way. And we spent some time talking about that. And John was known as the Baptist. And remember, we said that's because he was from First Baptist Church, Jerusalem. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Remember? Okay, some people say, oh, yeah, write that down. It's the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. No, he wasn't. He was known as the Baptist because he was instrumental in helping people turn to a life of faith in God. And that was concerning Judaism. Okay, so we're not talking about Christianity here yet because Jesus had not died. He had not been resurrected yet. So we're still talking somewhat Old Testament in that sense that he was a part of bringing people into the family of God and the way that they would show that was through baptism. Okay, and that's what John was doing. It was a sign that they, these people had committed themselves to God. And John had one simple message. And that message was, you remember, you remember this from last time, repent. That was his message. That's not a long sermon. But boy, there's a lot in there. Because what John was really saying to them is, you need to convert. You need to convert from your pagan life, from your life that you believe that you should live, whatever that may look like, and you need to be converted. Your heart needs to be changed. That was the message. And many were converted. And we know that according to verses 5 and 6. We're told by Matthew that Jerusalem was going out to him. Now that's a summation or a way to say that there were large crowds that were going out to see John and hear what he had to proclaim. In fact, we're told that all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. I mean, this was a revival service that was happening. People were coming to hear this message. And notice verse 6. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan. That's great. But here's the real key. They were confessing their sins. Their hearts were being affected. And so this was the real deal. God was doing a, an amazing work through John. In fact, John was so great and his ministry was so great that Jesus, the Lord himself, said this in Matthew 11. We haven't gotten to this yet. That of those born among women, there is no one greater than John. No one greater than John the Baptist. What Jesus was really saying is that John was the greatest of all spiritual people. He was the greatest spiritual giant up until that point. Even beyond Moses and Noah. I mean, this is the Lord saying this. So this gives us an idea of John the Baptist. You know, we hear so many stories over the years of these other great saints, and truly they are, but very little time spent on this man, John. He was the greatest who had ever lived, according to Jesus. Expected John the Baptist walked in, I would be willing to give up the pulpit for the morning, <laughs> according to what Jesus said. John was very humble. He was not a man who pointed to himself. We know that because of what he wore. Camel's hair, 
a leather belt, eating locust and wild honey. Did you try that this week, by the way? Anybody feast on locusts this week? I didn't get a chance to do that. And all of that was to call the people away from their daily ritual. What was John doing? He was moving by the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to call people away from the ritual of their life, from the hustle and the bustle of everything that they had surrounded themselves in. You don't normally think of, in this time, of the Bible, Jerusalem, being that kind of city, but it was. It was a very busy place, and people were getting caught up in their lives, in their lives and the things that they were were important to them. And so John becomes that symbol of God who's pulling people away from the distractions into the wilderness where God could be heard and could be seen. And we talked about this last time that often it is necessary to do that. I was just listening to an entertainer that I've enjoyed over the years by video the other day, and he was talking about how when he writes music, he says, I usually have to get away for about a week or so into complete silence where I'm not distracted from the things of the world. And then eventually at about day two or three, songs begin to come to my mind, almost like they're just floating by and I become the first one to hear them. And I put them down on paper. Now that person's not a believer, fantastic artist and musician, but nonetheless understanding this need to pull away. And that's often why over the years we've talked about how important it is to just be quiet before the Lord. We need that silence. And so this is really what John was doing, what he was called to do for the people's sake, to pull them away. But even more than all of that, and this is what we're going to see today, John was calling them away from their religious life, from their religiosity, if you want to put it that way, from their hypocrisy, from their phony spiritual lives, people who claimed to know the truth about God but did not And God was now calling them away to do business with himself. Come to me so that they would live a life of true repentance. If you also remember, Jesus said also in this same verse of Matthew 11, even though there was no one greater than John up until this point who had been born, he says the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he. Least in the kingdom of heaven. That's talking about us. And this is where we ended up last time. That's us. That's the church whom he's referring to here. We are even greater than John because we have the completion of the word of God. What you have in your lap this morning, on your phone or wherever you have it, is the completed work of God. We know the beginning from the end. And God says, those people who have my word are the ones who are even greater than John. Why? Because John didn't have all the completion of that. John didn't know those things. He was a man, born of miraculous means. Yes, but he was a man. He was not God. We, beloved, have the very words of God fulfilled to us, given to us this morning. So we then are also to be proclaimers and preparers of Christ's coming, his second coming. Again, you'll remember that from last time. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say. This may stagger you just a bit in your theological understanding. If Israel had obeyed God's words when Jesus came on the scene, there never would have been a need for the church age. Why? Because the king was there. Jesus was on the earth. The kingdom had come, and that's what John the Baptist was proclaiming. Listen, repent. The kingdom is here. 
There's nothing else that needs to come. He's on the earth. He's walking the face of the planet. He is the creator. He is the savior. And so if Israel had believed at that point, there'd be no need for the church age. But you and I are thankful because Israel rejected. We've been given the privilege to know who Christ is. There would be no need for a second coming. But there is the need for a second coming, and that's why you and I now become the proclaimers of his coming again, because he is coming back. Why? Because Israel rejected him, the very ones he came to save. And because they rejected, God opened a door for us, the non-Jews, as a way to have salvation. And so we become the mouth. We become the proclaimers. We are the truth tellers. We are the ones who are calling the world and ourselves even away from the religious life to a life of repentance, calling ourselves and the world out of that craziness. The whole meaning behind all of that is that Jesus left his own people and he opened the eyes of the world, the non-Jews, to be repentant and to be saved. Again, so we are the herald. In fact, you say, well, how is that really portrayed in Scripture? Well, let me mention this, and this is what I was hoping to get to last week. We just ran out of time. Paul would say in the communion time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's the chapter that I read from every Sunday that we have communion. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what do you do? You proclaim. Listen to that. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you hear the Lord saying that? You are the proclaimers. I am a proclaimer. In other words, by taking part in communion, we are acknowledging the belief that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he's coming again. And we say, okay, well... Understand that, how do we practically proclaim? We proclaim in lots of different ways, by cleansing our hearts, by changing our mindset, opening up ourselves to all of his commands, serving him from a willful, joyful heart, because we've been set free from the bondage of sin. And that's really why I opened up our service this morning, is that I want us to always be reminded as we come together collectively as a church family, that we're remembering why we're here. We should celebrate regularly. This is what the early church did on the first day of the week. They came together and they sang together and they proclaimed the truth of what Christ had done. Why? Because they knew they had been rescued. They had been forever set free. And that's what we should be doing too is practically proclaiming. And I thought about this this morning as I drove in and I was putting the signs out inviting people to come. That's what I do in the morning. Steve picks them up in the afternoon. And I put one out on 29 here, and there's always people that kind of look at you a little weird, you know. Hey, what's that guy doing? Oh, it's a church, you know, kind of thing. That's kind of the feeling you get. And nobody says that, at least so far. And, uh, but you kind of get that sense. But I thought about this this morning. I thought, no, we here on Airport Road are proclaiming Christ, putting a sign out, coming here this morning and preparing our hearts and awakening this morning with enthusiasm to get ourselves going so that we could be part of the proclaiming exactly like John was proclaiming of Jesus coming. We are saying to the world by being in this building right now that Jesus' world is coming again. That's why we're here. We're here to worship him because he saved us. He rescued us. But he's coming back. 
And we want you to know that. And so, in other ways, we serve tangibly by loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's why we went through the bless every home thing. Remember those sermons that I did? We pray for the neighborhood. We care for them. We ultimately want to share the gospel. We want to disciple them. Why? Because we want them to be rescued. This is the message of God. And when we're open to God's work, we'll have those opportunities to do just that. And we have to be paying attention. we got to be thinking. We can't let the world distract us. And this happens to me all the time. But a couple times I've had the opportunity just recently to be driving out of my driveway and I met one of my neighbors and found out that as I asked him, I said, hey, what can we do to pray for you? He said, well, looked at me kind of funny because nobody asked that kind of question, right? And said, well, my dad's not doing too well. Would you pray for him? And so I've been praying for him and I'd ask you as a church to pray for him. There's a lady who's been living across, I don't even know her, but there's been a house, I should say, it's across from our cul-de-sac and for the years we've lived in the house, never met the people. I've understood that he is a traveling person for Apple products, I think it is. And uh, one day I was driving here to the church, and lo and behold, here's a woman, his wife, out in the yard and watering the grass, and went over and struck up a conversation, and had two conversations now, and found out that um, they travel a lot back and forth, and so I said, I'll be glad to pray for you. You see, it's not about me. It's understanding that our job is to proclaim who Christ is and why he has come and that he's coming again, looking for opportunities to be even more clear as the doors are open to us. Why do we do all that? We do it because we've been rescued. But you remember the scriptures tell us that once we understand, we also need to examine ourselves. And, and that's also part of the message of God is that we need to examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. And if John is saying to this group of Jews, if you're not in the faith, if you're not truly converted, you need to be converted. You need to be converted. This is not an if. Or this is not something that you can just think about for a while. No, the message of John is, no, you need to repent. You must if you are going to see the kingdom of God. You must. If you do not, you will not see the kingdom of God. It's that simple. It's not a hard message. It's hard in the effect of the message, in the cause of the message, but it's not hard as a message. That's it. You want to know what the message is to the world? You need to repent. You need to be converted. Or you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, Today, we're going to look at what a converted life looks like. And so I've titled the message, The Life of a Repentant Heart. What does this really look like? How does this make itself known? I've already introduced some of that, but we're going to spend the balance of this on these two verses today because that's what John does now as he looks at two particular groups of people coming for baptism. These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the scripture is in the New Testament, riddled throughout with them, especially in the Gospels. And as John sees these two groups of people coming, he's troubled because they were anything but true followers of God. But they had made themselves out to be true followers of God, and John knew that. They were the hypocrites. And let's talk about the first one, that is the Pharisees, because that's how they're introduced. They're a really interesting group. We're not really sure historically where they came from, there's a lot of thought, a lot of speculation. Some of it probably accurate. Uh, 
really showed up around the intertestamental period. That's again that time between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, a period of about 400 years. They were probably in connection with this Hasidim, which was a Jewish group of people who held tightly to Jewish nationalism. And this is important for you to hear this because often when you're studying the scriptures, you'll see Jesus point out these people, these groups. So we need to know why he's saying what he is. Hasidim means pious ones. People who thought supposedly little of themselves and elevated God. Well, they did that because, or they called themselves this, because they tried to live a life of spiritual self-sufficiency. In other words, nothing else was important. I only need God in my life. And that's not wrong. But like anything that starts out good, if it's not paid attention to carefully and really combed through with the scriptures, it can get off track, right? We've watched our lives do the same thing. If we're not regularly combing through the things of our life, we will get off track and miss the point. And that's what happened here. They lost their effect because they got started focusing more on politics and other worldly issues, those things became more important to them than what should have been important. That group gave way more than likely to the Pharisees, and the word Pharisees means separated one or separatists. This was the elite group. They were the legalists, part of the religious leaders of Israel that had grown up during this 400-year period, evidently who elevated themselves above everybody else, spiritually speaking, and even physically, really, but mostly spiritually, thinking that everybody else was a greater sinner than they were. They didn't deny the fact that they were themselves sinners, but they really downplayed that, which is why Jesus told the parable in Luke 18 about two men who went up to the temple to pray, and one Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and they really hated tax collectors because they were bad sinners. The parable says that the Pharisee stood and praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the people, the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes of all that I get. It's a pretty good snapshot into the life of the Pharisee that Jesus was calling him out on. And because they believed that they were more holy than anyone else, they followed various rituals that they had displayed or devised and supplements to the laws of Moses. For example, one of the things that they would do is after they would leave the marketplace, because these were the guys who were wanting to be in the public eye all the time, believing that they were more holy, they would go through this ritualistic washing and purifying of themselves after being around such contaminated people. This is what they believed. And especially if they were somehow unnoticing that they had touched something unclean, they would go through these kinds of things. They were loyal only to themselves and made up many of their own traditions because they believed that adhering to such things would get them some brownie points with God and give them a greater place in heaven. But the reality is that they were the epitome of, and listen, religion. They were the, the religious empty of true spiritual life. There was nothing there. There was nothing in the tank, really. They were the shell of what everything should be like but wasn't really because they were full of hypocrisy. You remember the word hypocrisy simply means to wear the mask? 
When we talk about a hypocrite, it's portraying something that's not real. A person who says they're one thing, but they're not really proving it by their life actions or what they really say they believe, that's a hypocrite. And we all fall into the category in some way. We're all sinners at the core that are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? That's a good place to say amen. But we're all hypocrites in a sense because we all misname ourselves. We mismark ourselves in the presence of other people because we don't want to look bad. That was the Pharisees. Jesus said of them, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chairs of Mo- in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. In other words, they have a sense of being religious leaders. So, as Jesus would say in other places, obey your leaders. But notice this, he says, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. This was part of their makeup of how they would present themselves to the public. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectfully and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. They love being called by the title. That was the Pharisees. And that's just a brief, brief snapshot of who the Pharisees were. We could go into much greater depth about them. And just, but I just wanted you to get the sense of who they are. Let's talk about the Sadducees just for a second. That was a different group. Very different from the Pharisees. These were the ultra-liberal. The Pharisees were the straightforward, strict religionists, keepers of the law. The Sadducees were just the opposite. They were liberal in the sense that they were compromisers, both in their politics and in their religion. In other words, doctrine was not important, and we've been through that many times before, how critical doctrine is. To them, doctrine was not important. You can make it basically whatever you need it to be, as long as it fits what you think is right. There were some other things that they didn't agree to, which was they didn't believe in angels. So in other words, there was no supernatural. There was no resurrection of the body. And that's where the joke comes from. They were sad, you see, because there was no resurrection. At least that's what they believed. Or really believed in any things that were supernatural by nature. So they were kind of just, whatever you see is what you get. It was that kind of philosophy. They were great oppositionists to the legal thinkings of the Pharisees and their traditions. And again, basically lived for the here and now. This is what you get, so you better make the best of it. You better make the most of it. Getting everything they could from the people, whether it be Gentile or Jew, that's the non-Jews or the Jews, believing that they were the masters of their own destinies, they were the free willers, if you will. I make my decision, I make my choice, God really has nothing to do with it. The legalists or the Pharisees were the ones who believed in the sovereignty of God and that God chooses those whom he has called, and that's certainly true. The Sadducees were just the opposite. We really don't know where they came from. Believe that they came from a line under a man named Zadok. And you'll see that name in the scripture who was the chief priest under Solomon. But again, none of that is confirmed. What we do know, and this will be a little interesting for you, is that they ran the temple. So they were the temple priest guys. They were the ones who took care of the sacrifices. 
In fact, these were the ones who were the exchangers of the money for those who needed to purchase animals for the sacrifices. And that should start ringing a bell for you. Because it was this group that Jesus came in and overturned their tables on. It was the Sadducees, these liberal guys, who thought that as long as they could buy their way into heaven, they were great. And, but because they were the ones who were in charge of all that, they were also very wealthy, which also made them less popular with the Pharisees, who saw at least the people in a different way, in some form of law of Moses that was more important. And I think you get the idea there. So again, just a very, very brief snapshot into the lives of these two groups. But just remember that neither of them had anything in common except for their supposed following of God. And this is helping us to understand why John is so strongly opposed to them, as we see this in just a minute, and we just read. They couldn't have lived in a more constant opposition to each other, both groups. The Pharisees, again, expected their reward in heaven, while the Sadducees expected their reward in this life. Very different, and yet both groups trusted their personal works. They're more strongly in favor of their personal works and their self-effort and their reasoning as the way to get favor with God. Certainly God must be pleased with me. Look at who I am. Look at what I'm capable of. Look what I've done. Look at how the people respond to me. But both were very superficial spiritually and really had no concern for a change of the heart, which is what John is going to be attacking. Or really any good for their neighbor. Now, these were both the hypocrites, the self-serving, those people who were just absolutely dead spiritually. Now, both groups, again, sadly, lived sinful patterns of religiosity. They were religious. This is why we hate the word religion. It's not a curse word, but it's pretty close. If you've ever talked to somebody and they say to you, well, I really don't like anything to do with religion, your answer should be, yeah, me either. Because religion is rules and regulations. Okay? There's a certain sense in which that's good, but the reality is that's not what we're after. God is not after that. God is after a changing of the heart. But they believed that they had the answer to all of the holiness that anybody could ever get, and that's why God should be so pleased with them. Now, unfortunately, let's just bring it home here again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have been a part of the church since its beginning. You say, really? I don't remember any groups of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the church. Well, they're not. I'm making this little tongue-in-cheek here to say that these kinds of people have been in the church all the centuries of the church. Many, many churches have been made up of people who believe and promote a life of works to gain righteousness. Ask any person out on the street, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And you know what they're going to tell you? Well, sure, I think so. Well, why do you think that? Well, because I do this and I do that. And I've been here and I've done that. What are they doing? They're justifying themselves by the way their neighbor lives. Well, that's a Pharisee. That's a Sadducee. But that same kind of thinking is in the church. These people, simply because they've been in charge for many years, centuries really, maybe just through attrition or whatever, or because their family started the church, there are people who are like that, right? Well, of course I'm a leader and I'm going to go to heaven because my family began this church hundreds of years ago. 
And because of that, God has favor with us and with me. Or they are the ones who give the most money. Or, heaven forbid, you should ever touch the cemetery because the relatives are all buried there, and that's what's our stake in the ground, pun intended, for why we have a claim on this place. I've told you the story before of a guy who was pastoring a church down in the Danville area, and he couldn't get the church to come up off of some of the cemetery money because he wanted to do some things. And I said, well, what kind of fund are we talking about here? He says, $250,000 in the cemetery fund. A quarter of a million dollars in the cemetery fund. And the church wouldn't touch it. I said, why wouldn't the church touch it? He says, because that's where everybody's relative is buried. So I'd like to have that mowing job. <laughs> be the caretaker of a quarter million dollar cemetery as long as you footed the bill real well. You see the problem? See how people get lost in this kind of thing? Amen. <laughs> well, whatever their thinking is, it's not based on the love that God has for his church, but what they can get from the church. That really becomes the problem with people like this. Others have promoted liberalism by means of which they should have the top seat in heaven, believing that anyone should be allowed interest in entrance into heaven. A lot of people who think that, well, sure, if you're good enough. I'm a nice guy, so I should be allowed there. Or people believe that God is a kind judge, and that he's going to accept anybody who lives a good life. Certainly he's not going to reject anyone. Regardless of the changed spiritual life spiritually, these are the same people who think God should accept them because of how bad everybody else is around them. Again, they measure themselves by what they see. In fact, a changed life for any of these people has nothing to do with the heart towards God and His Word, but has everything to do with promoting their own agenda and assuming God will change based on what they think is best and what their beliefs and their desires are. And so all of that, beloved, is why John includes these two groups in the way that he does in his statement as the Pharisees and the Sadducees come. So he sees them coming for baptism, and he's quickly repulsed by them, and he should be, because, again, heaven is not achieved by a person's ability or by their merit or by their stance in anything in this life or before others. Heaven is gained by those who know they are sinners, accept the fact that they are sinners, and repent and give their lives over to Christ for forgiveness. That's what a Christian is. A person who says, yes, Lord, I agree with you. That's what confession is. I agree with you that I am what you say that I am, a sinner at the core. The Bible says that. Well, I've sinned i sure of the glory of God. I agree with that, Lord. I'm confessing that before you, and now I want to repent of that. I want to turn from that, not just in my mind, but in my heart. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And accept you as the gift that paid the debt of that sin. Amen. That becomes a Christian, a follower of Christ. But John sees these two groups of people coming, not believing any of that, believing that heaven is gained by their own merit. And so he says to them in verse 7, if you're looking at the text there, you brood of vipers. 
When's the last time you called somebody that? Imagine going up to somebody in the marketplace and saying, would you like to learn about Christ? No, I don't want to hear anything about that. You brood of viper. Are you viper? I mean, John knew nothing about church growth. All right? I mean, John just missed the class in seminary on church growth because you would never say something like that to somebody who wants your church to grow. I mean, you're going to be kind and you're going to say whatever's necessary to get them to be excited. I don't see John's smoke machine. I don't see John's latest exciting building. I don't see the clothing that he's supposed to have. I don't see any of that stuff. John missed the class on church growth. And he really was a terrible preacher because, I mean, he just called the people out. You want to know who you are? You're a brood of vipers. That's who you are. Can you imagine saying that to the spiritually elite? Those who thought they had it all together? Who are you coming here with camel's hair on, eating locusts and wild honey, and you're going to call me a viper? That's the message. It's almost like you want to hear John. You kind of find yourself standing beside John going, did you hear me? Yeah, I'm talking about you. Yeah, I didn't mince my words there. Mix my words. And he said that because he knew the reason for their coming. They came for one reason. They wanted to show the common people their great spirituality. They knew baptism and what it was. So it was important for them to come and show everybody how great they were and that they were ready to follow in the ritual of baptism to prove that they were the first in line for heaven. Get away from me. Let us to the front of the line because you already know that we're the first in line. And that would just simply amaze the people who knew them, which again would only elevate the Pharisees' hypocrisy because they had no desire for the truth or for a change of heart. Now it is possible on the backside of all of this that they heard of John and they would have believed in the prophets. That wouldn't have been a problem for them. They would have believed possibly that John was a prophet and been very curious about that. And if he would, more than likely they could go and get some points also with God because the prophet had come and they were showing their self-righteous egos and pointing out people who were not as good as they were who did not recognize him as a true prophet. Unfortunately, like all spiritually arrogant people, they probably more so wanted to see how they could just take over the movement and do a better job and gain a greater following. Or if nothing else, they could get the praise of the people. And don't we kind of do that with people? You know, we elevate people to a level that they shouldn't be at. I'm just always amazed at how we're so enthusiastic over people who just because they've been on television have some cause for notoriety. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, somebody writes a book and all of a sudden they're famous. Now think about the number of people that are famous in this world. If they walked in here right now, whomever you want that to be, you would take notice of that person. But you have no knowledge of their heart, really. But yet you'll elevate them, and I'll elevate them, to a status that they really shouldn't achieve. I'm talking spiritually, necessarily. 
Hopefully there are some that we would certainly be able to do that with spiritually. The truth is, beloved, let's just talk about the truth because that's what we're always after. Self-righteous people are always motivated by basically three things. The first one is pride, fear, and money. And those all tie together in some way. Self-righteous people are basically motivated by pride, fear, and money. And here's how. Each of those things says, me first. It's about me. Every one of those three subjects, me first. Pride says, as long as I get what I want, you can have the leftovers. Me. Fear says, if I don't get the praise of the people, I'll lose control of the situation and won't get what I want from them. Right? You can apply this to any scenario in life. Money means one thing. Power. Control. Dominance. But all of those are just wrong reasons. Uh, let's not forget status. Money brings a certain level of status. Right? But all those things are wrong reasons. They're wicked reasons. And they don't reflect a life of true conversion. They don't re reflect a life of true repentance. Now, I'm not saying that money is in the category of a person who is a believer, couldn't be in, a, in the life of a person who's a believer. So just hinge on that a little bit. I'm talking about the negative effects of all of these three things. As I said, all of these have a me-centered life focus instead of what God is really after, and this is John's point, a life that is surrendered to Christ, surrendered to God and what he wants. The fact that John refers to them as a brood, it's an interesting word. He calls them a brood. shows us that he knew that even though they had a different philosophy spiritually, they were from the same evil maker, Satan. Notice he doesn't separate the two groups in his comment. He says, you brood. He's putting them in the same category. Why? Because even again, though they had different philosophies about spiritual life and theology even, they still were the originators or the children, if you will, from Satan himself. Maybe John could change his message a little bit there and say, you children of Satan. How'd you like to do that? The word brood means offspring or spawn. So John is referring to them and their forefathers because they came through the genealogy of other people, right? Through the lineage of other people and everyone who is associated with their beginning as being from Satan, who is the father of lies and hypocrisy. As for calling them vipers, a viper, if you've studied this, is one of those Deadly snakes, one of the deadliest of snakes. But it's unnoticed in its natural habitat. If you've ever been out in the countryside and you walk upon a snake, you know, sometimes they're really hard to see, especially if it's a copperhead and it blends in with the terrain. Well, in the same way a viper would be just like that, it would look more like a small slender stick. And this is probably why Paul got bit when he picked up the bundle of sticks in the book of Acts didn't recognize it, didn't see it, because it looked so much like its surroundings. It's purposeful that the Spirit calls these groups brood of vipers because they blend it in. They blend it in spiritually, making the people kind of see them and be aware of them, but yet not really fully sure who they were other than they were the spiritually elite. 
And they would respect him in the same way we would a snake. But it's undetectable until it's too late. If you came under the power of a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you would be too late in recognizing who they were unless the Spirit of God opened them, opened your eyes. So similarly, the bite then of the Pharisee and the Sadducee was like the hidden work of a viper, deadly spiritually, and able to hide itself in the camouflage of its surroundings, which again is how these two groups operated. They looked like a normal part of the landscape, but in reality they were Satan's workers who had the spiritually lethal bite, which is why again John calls them serpents, usurpants. And who is the chief serpent? Satan. How did he appear to Eve in the garden? As a serpent. That's how these people operate. And again, these people are in the church today, and they've been there since the beginning, hidden among God's people, the true saints, looking just like the part, acting the part, but not being a part. Jude calls them out. When he's wanting to write to the church about their common salvation, it's almost like a Sunday morning Jude would stand up and say, let's just talk about the joy of our salvation. He interrupts himself and he warns the people about who is in their midst. And here's what he says in verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. Now what Jude is saying here is that it's like that time of fellowship meals kind of thing. They bury themselves as if they're just a normal part of the family of God. That's what he means by this. Hidden reefs. Picture that. It's a reef where the ship or the boat would be going across it, but it doesn't see it under the surface of the water, but it's right there until the hull hits it. And then it's too late. Jude says they care only for themselves. They are like clouds without water. Just this last week we were at the lake and we had some showers. You all had some pretty bad storms, understand. But there were times during the day where you look up and you got these beautiful white puffy clouds and you're saying, isn't that gorgeous? And then you got these others that are pretty, but underneath they're just dark. And they float by just blocking the sun and the joy of the sun. But they don't have any rain in them. There's no substance to them. They just look like something that could be a problem, but there's nothing really there. Well, that's kind of the sense here that Jude is talking about, except he's arguing from a refreshing, effective sense that these are, these are people who talk about being spiritual, but they don't have any joy in their souls to give to you. They're just either law or liberalism. Whatever you want. Or it should be this way. Carried along by the winds, Jude says, there are autumn trees without fruit. Everybody loves to go up in the mountain and look at the, up in the mountains in the fall time here in a few weeks and look at the trees with their leaves and their beauty. And people want to go pick apples, but this is like the most beautiful apple tree. But you go up to it and there's no fruit. Well, what good is that apple tree? It's pretty to look at, but it doesn't provide anything. Doubly dead, Jude says, uprooted, wild waves of the sea. You want to know how they're, what they really are like? That's what they're like. Casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. What's he saying? He's saying these are the demonic spirits who have been called to be locked away forever in eternal damnation. That's who these people are. 
These are the people in the church who look like God's people. They talk like God's people. They give an appearance of God's people in the way that they conduct themselves, but their heart is not for God. And that's how they're exposed, because the heart will identify them. And that's what John is after here. Notice now, going on here, after John identifies them, he exposes their hearts by asking them this direct question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Man, what a question. Thinking about snakes again. If you've ever stumbled upon a snake in the wild, you know they have very keen senses. right? They see you before you see them most of the time. And anything out of the ordinary will alarm them. I was reminded as I was going through this of when I was a young boy and I was in the backyard and there was a, a, a building. It's not there anymore. And I walked up to that building and I saw this black thing laying on this big flat rock that was there. And I kind of thought I knew what it was, but I wasn't sure. I had in my mind it was something else. And I just gently went up to it and I took the tip of my toe and I touched it like that. And as soon as I did, it just stood up like this. And boy, I... Boogity split right there. <laughs> Went and called mom and dad, and they came out and took care of it. It was a black snake. I know. Some of you say, oh, I shouldn't kill a black snake. Well, okay. any snake's a good snake that's a dead snake. In my mind. Well, in a similar way, the Pharisees were always on heightened alert for anything that was super spiritual. Or anything that would make them stand apart. That's why they were doing this. They were coming to John because, hey, maybe this will elevate us a little bit more. So anything that was out of the ordinary, so that they could be first in line for heaven. And because they were spiritually super sensitive to being the first in heaven, they wanted to be a part of anything, again, that looked like it pointed to heaven. So John's coming to baptize was like a warning to them. It was just like a warning to them that they needed to get themselves ready. The problem was they were missing the true way to heaven. They were acknowledging, perhaps, who John was, as I said earlier, but they were more concerned about fire insurance than they were about change of their own hearts. And for them, baptism was just that. It was fire insurance. This would seal their fate. This would do it. Here's the prophet the town and the surrounding villages going to him, this will seal our fate. But really, it was just fire insurance protecting them from the wrath to come, which is what John is saying. Hey, who told you vipers, you biters of the people spiritually? Who told you about the wrath that's coming? I know why you're here. You just want to make yourself look good in front of the people. Again, let's go back to the church. Unfortunately, there are many people in the church today who are just the same way. They're just looking for fire insurance. They want the policy. They're willing to pay for the policy, but in their own way, making sure that their good works are better than their bad works. Again, as long as God is pleased with my works, certainly I'll be okay. There's no way that God will reject me because I'm a good person. I've never hurt anybody. I've never done anything bad. And so God must be more pleased with me than he is the other person. Certainly there are going to be other people that are going to go to hell. I get that. But those are the really bad people. 
there are various forms of fire insurance that people buy. Some will, as we've already mentioned, give money. They'll be the biggest givers. They'll work in all kinds of ministries, believing that that's going to give them points. They love being leaders of groups because that makes them even stand out more and then they'll have that ability to allow their pride to dictate and determine what happens, really elevating themselves because they believe again that God is more concerned with what they do than who they are. But as I already said, the bigger reason people do all these things is because they can't stand to not be in control. That's one of the biggest problems. They can't accept the fact that somebody might be able to do a little bit better than I can and have a different motive in all of this. And if I let go of this, the reins of the church or the position, then I'm not going to be recognized as the best member of the church and I'm not going to get my way. Beloved, listen, that's Phariseeism at its best. That's Sadduceeism. Lump them together. Doesn't matter. Because no matter what you're believing about that, it's the same thing. It's hypocrisy. It's not a changed heart, which is what the Lord is concerned about. And again, unfortunately, the actions of people support these very truths. For example, when people don't get their way, one of the two options they have is either I'll just quit and go somewhere else, or I'll just leave the church altogether Instead of being an example of what they should be, which is kindness and grace and mercy and humility and being a true brother or sister and submission, which is what a real family member looks like. Now, sometimes they don't just leave, they hang around like a bad habit and they give everybody an irritation, waiting for the day that the church gets in trouble so that they can set themselves back up again as the Savior that everybody will look to. Drawing attention to how great they are and again receiving everybody's praise. Look how great I am. Because the church is okay. Aren't you so excited that you're here this morning and the church is okay because you're here today? Well, listen, the answer is don't, don't say yes to that. Because that's not the right answer. The church is okay for one reason. Because Jesus is in control. That's why the church is okay. We are here drawing the breath of God because he gives us the breath to draw. That's why we're here. We're here for one reason, to praise him and to worship him. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done. The minute, beloved, listen carefully, the minute you and I step outside of that circle, that very tight circle, We've just walked into a trap of hypocrisy. We have become a Pharisee. We have become a Sadducee. We have become a part of the brood of vipers. That's strong language, but that's the truth. The minute you or I ever believe, whether we're talking about elders or deacons or anybody else, Sunday school teachers, it doesn't matter. The minute either any one of us begins to think this church is surviving because of us, We've just lost. We just and Satan has won. Bottom line. We are to be humble before the Lord. We are to say to the Lord, thank you, Father, that we have been given the privilege to be a part of your church. 
to be a part of your work, to be a part of your family members, to be a part of your body. We are privileged, Lord. This is not a right. This is a privilege (coughs) to be a part of his family. Hey, you didn't choose you. I didn't choose me. The scriptures say, I didn't choose God. He chose me. He chose you. He opened up your heart and your mind to believe. All you did was fell on your face. If you're a true believer and you said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you because of who you are, not because of who I am. Nothing else will do. Listen, God is not concerned with what you do or what I do. He's not concerned with who we are or where we come from. He's concerned about one thing. Our hearts being changed. That's what he's after. Which is exactly, again, why John is proclaiming this message the way that he is. He's saying, repent, folks. Repent. Turn around. Be converted. You are missing the whole point. You dress yourself up to look good. You look great in the eyes of the public and the people. But you are missing the point. You need to be converted or you will miss it all. And you will end up in a devil's hell. Otherwise, you are also a brood of vipers. And notice John says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we're going to go just a little further, so hang on there. And we've said here, repentance is a changed heart and a changed life, and it is a heart that was going this way, and it turns around, it's going the other way, it's a heart that sees it's wrong, and it makes changes to live righteously from the heart. That's the key. Listen to that. Again, this was not a new message. This is why we're so indicting for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Way back in Isaiah, Isaiah 1, and this is just one of many places, Isaiah the prophet would say, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. And Jewish teaching has always made that point. The wickedness of the soul that's full of pride and fear and just wanting money, control, is, okay, I can do that. Look how good I can wash myself. And that's why Jesus said to them, you're full of dead men's bones. You're a whitewashed tomb. That's who you are. You look good on the outside, but you're dead internally. Listen to this also. It's not enough just to admit your sin. Not enough. You say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought that's what I'm supposed to do. There's a difference between admitting and truly confessing to repentance. Let me give you some examples here. Pharaoh. In Exodus 9.27, you remember the story? Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. This was after all the plagues, and Pharaoh's really feeling the weight of everything now. And he says to him, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Boy, that is right down the line correct, isn't it? But Pharaoh was just using words. He was acknowledging truth, but his heart wasn't changed. How do we know that? Because he he lost his army, and he ended up losing the entire kingdom, and we have no record of his salvation whatsoever. When we have this long history of everything that could have happened, that God could have expressed to us about he, how he had changed. No, he changed for a moment. Why? Because his back was against the wall. He was looking for fire insurance. 
And then we have Balaam in Numbers 22. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I'll turn back. If you understand the story of Balaam, he was being used of God as a prophet to go against Israel. God wasn't putting him up to this, but he was judging Israel in this sense. God was. Balaam cries out to God, but he really wasn't a heartfelt cry. We know that from later in Numbers. There was no real change there. There's a man named Achan in Joshua chapter 7 who disobeyed the commandment of God when they went into the land, to the new land, and he took some of the spoils he wasn't supposed to take. He comes in Joshua 7 verse 20. He confesses that, but he was never changed. Why? Because God slew him on the spot. Saul, King Saul, was the same way in 1 Samuel 15, 24. Looked like the greatest guy Israel had ever had. Israel was so excited about their new king, but his heart was not changed. He gave all the appearance of a changed man. And then we have the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Jesus says to him, listen, you've done a great job with your life. And the guy says, well, what else do I need to do to have eternal life? And he says, go sell everything that you have and come follow me. And when, we're, when we read Luke, it says, when he'd heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He had the idea, but his heart was not really changed. And probably the chief of them all is Judas. People have said, oh, I think Judas is going to be in heaven. This is the one who betrayed Jesus. No, he's not. And we know that in Scripture, because in Matthew 27, it says that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And return the 30 pieces of silver. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See that to yourself. That's what they said. Keep your money. We got what we wanted. Jesus is dead. And he went out and he hanged himself. Because he was sorry that he had done it. But he wasn't sorry to the point where he had truly converted. And accepted Christ for who he really, really was. True repentance, brothers and sisters, is a lifetime change. It's a lifetime change. It's a deep acceptance of what's wrong through deep conviction of sin, not just regret, not just remorse. It's not just turning over a new leaf. It's not just saying, I'll make things better. No, it's starting a new life with Jesus. Deep, internal, heart, mind change. Both heart and mind. Both of them have to be working together because one affects the other. In other words, you can't change your heart and not be changed in your mind. If the heart is truly changed, the mind will change. If the mind changes truly, the heart will be affected. They both work together. David said in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Listen, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with what? A willing spirit. Do you hear, David? Change me, Lord. Change my heart. Give me a willing spirit. A mind that's changed, a heart that's changed, and then I know I will be fully yours. True repentance is being truly sorry for offending the God of the universe. Let's just put it that way. Offending the God of the universe. And willing to make whatever changes are necessary from the heart proven by actions. Changes from the heart. 
William Perkins, who was a Puritan years ago, wrote this, Godly sorrow causes grief for sin because he hath offended a loving, merciful, and long-suffering God. You say, well, what actions really prove that my heart has really been repentance? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 3. Just for a minute. This is the same, by the way, story that we're hearing from Matthew. Just Luke adds just a little bit. So hang in there with me just for a minute. You're going to hear something from the Spirit here. Don't get lost in the flesh. And the crowds were questioning him, talking about John the Baptist, saying, then what shall we do? Okay, he's saying to them, this is what Luke records, the same thing in Matthew, repent. Show fruits under repentance. That's where Matthew stops. Luke picks it up. And he says, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. That's number one. Verse 12, and some tax collectors came to him to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. Verse 14, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? Isn't that beautiful? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. You know what John is saying through all that? He says, from, Number one, from your heart, share your possessions. Why? Because they don't belong to you. They're God's. Share them. Number two, don't steal anything from anybody. You don't need to. Thirdly, be content with everything that you have. Every one of those things are a heart issue. Every one of them. Which again is what always needs to change. In our daily dealings with people, even the most difficult people, we are to let the love of Christ be the motive for everything that we do and reflect a changed We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why Jesus said that. Peter said it this way. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You want some practical things here about a changed heart? Here they are from Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, there's the heart, to every human institution, whether it's the king or the one in authority, or to governors. It's sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of who do those who do right. This is why we pray for the people in leadership. It's a heart change. That's why we pray for them. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, the world's going to look at you and say, you're an idiot. Yeah, that's right, because my heart's changed. And I follow Christ. And this is what my king has told me. From my heart I pray for these people. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. I'm a servant. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. In other words, obey your boss. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but listen to this, but also those who are unreasonable. You, listen, you, you work for a jerk right now? Well, you've got the freedom to get another job, but right now while you're working for that jerk... Live for Christ for that jerk. That reflects a changed heart. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under the sorrows when suffered unjustly, for what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated? You endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer, it, suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. In other words, God's saying, hey, you suffer for things that you're not patient about, big deal. Everybody does that. 
But when you patiently, lovingly, graciously serve each other and serve the world out here, even in the midst of persecution, you are proving that you belong to God. Because only God can give that kind of heart. No human being has that capacity. If they do, it'll be about this long, and that's as long as it'll last. In every situation, we are to live the Word of God, not because it's easy, but because we're changed. We are to submit for one another to one another. We are to care for one another. We are to genuinely love others. If for no other reason than God said it, we are to teach our children to follow God because we're changed. We hold tightly to the truth of God because we are changed. Even when the world wants to destroy us, we don't retaliate because we are changed. We're to be careful about our words. Why? Because we're changed. We're to be cautious where we go and what we take part in. Why? Because we're changed. We serve God simply because we love Him, because He has rescued us, and because He is God and He has changed us. So John says it like this, okay, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you want to show that you're changed, prove it by your fruits. And when you do, I'll be glad to baptize you. That's what John said. Absolutely. I'll baptize you. You understand, even at the church here, that's what we will say? Absolutely we'll baptize you if your life produces and shows fruit. Now, how do we find that out? Well, every new member's class, we have people fill out their personal testimony to give some record of a changed life. the same thing. And after that, we will gladly baptize people. Whoever demonstrates that kind of life. It takes time to know a person's heart. But nonetheless, that's the ticket. Let me give you something here and then we'll close with this. I know I've kept you long. Thank you for your patience. John MacArthur has in his MacArthur Study Bible something that I've shared with our new members in every class. He calls it the evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. Visible morality does not prove or disprove somebody's faith. It's good, but it doesn't prove it. Intellectual knowledge doesn't prove or disprove. Religious involvement doesn't prove or disprove. An active ministry doesn't prove or disprove. Conviction of sin doesn't prove or disprove. Assurance doesn't prove or disapprove. Time of decision doesn't prove or disapprove. None of those necessarily prove one way or the other. So what are the proofs of authentic change? Number one is a love for God. Nobody loves God without a changed heart. Nobody. Listen, nobody loves God without a changed heart. Nobody repents from sin, truly repents, truly converts in their heart without a love for God. Nobody has genuine humility without a true, authentic heart. Nobody is devoted to the glory of God without a truly repentant heart. Why? Because the heart will take every time from God's glory. Nobody will stay in an attitude of prayer continually. Nobody will be selfless in their love. Nobody's going to separate themselves from the world in a true sense that's not truly born again. Nobody's going to grow spiritually, and nobody's certainly going to be obedient to the Word of God if their heart's not truly changed. So, true repentance, if you haven't gotten it by now, 
is a changed heart and a changed mind, which shows up in its actions, proves itself. Paul said this, and I promise you we'll close on this verse. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. It's first. It's Second uh, Corinthians 13:5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? And notice the tagline at the end. Unless indeed you fail the test. Strong words. Examine your heart. Look and see if Christ is in there. Look at the scripture. Examine your life on a daily basis. And you will see Christ. Unless he's not there. If he's not there, you're not a part of him. Very simple. Very simple. All right, let's pray God. Father, first of all, just in a human sense, I want to thank you for the patience of these dear people. But I want to thank you for the, the focus of their minds and their hearts this morning. Lord, I want to thank you mostly for your word that's just so powerful to us. But thank you for the ability to change hearts. Thank you that you want to change hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you came to change hearts. That you left us your word to change our hearts. So, Lord, as we close this morning, I'm not going to drag this out. Your, your work will do the work that it needs to do. Your spirit will do everything that you've purposed to do. And so I just offer on behalf of our church family here our hearts to you this morning. And would ask that in some way you would bring glory to yourself through us. Help us, Lord, not to get wrapped up in something that we do or we're able to do that we would truly sing this final song as we exit this place rejoicing over what you have done and who you are. Not any gratification for ourselves. And Lord, when we go out of these doors today, may it be that we would all know you as our Lord and Savior. Father, if there's one soul, one soul that doesn't know you today, may you please open their hearts. Just thinking about the tragic circumstance we just read last night of that young couple that went to the magistrate and was married and drove out, and five minutes later they were dead. Car wreck. Five minutes into their marriage. Lord, I pray that that would not happen to any soul before they know that you are God and King of their lives and their hearts are changed. Lord, this is serious business. There is nothing more important on the planet at this moment, right now than your spirit reaching into the soul of a man or woman. And may God, you do that according to your will and your purposes. And may we as a church reflect you in everything that we do this week. We offer this to you in Jesus' name and for his sake. We pray, amen. Would everyone stand, please? He is with a grateful heart, give thanks to the Holy One, give thanks.
Because he's given Jesus.